hello, hello. Seven Mile Road, uh, I have missed you. It's good to see you. Hello, Corbett. Corbett just leaned over and said, who is that? Um, if we haven't met, my name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have been on sabbatical this summer, and I'm back, and I'm delighted to be back. Um, just want to say thank you. Thanks to the generosity of this community and your encouragement to the generosity and the wisdom of the leadership of the elders. My family and I got to have a really special summer together. Uh, we drove 8,000 miles together. Um, my boys are, are uh, 10 and 8 and 3 years old, and we came back and we all still like each other. After 8,000 miles in the car, we had uh, a lot of unforgettable memories. And then the last six weeks or so, I've been studying and preparing and dreaming both for personally the, the future and as well how and what God may have in store for us as a body that the elders and staff and I will be processing in the weeks and months to come and we will be sharing with you as God continues to just give us clarity about who we're going to be and how we keep growing into that vision that he has for us. And so it was amazing, but I've missed you. I'm really really thankful to be standing back in this place with the scriptures open with anticipation as to what God is going to do. I have a lot of confidence about where we're headed and what God has in store for us. I think God is on the move and uh, I think he wants to use you and work in you and through you and I'm excited about the ways he's going to do that. Just before we dig into the scripture together, would you join me as I pray and ask for God's help? Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we come to this moment together as a community, and we all have a responsibility in this moment. God, I'm asking one that as I open these scriptures that I would be true to the words that are there, that Jesus, you would be teaching us by your spirit what it means for us to be rightly relating to the world and to your word. We need your help, God, if we're going to be distinct, if we're going to bless and encourage and to preserve and illumine the world around us. And I pray for the men and women right now that can hear my voice. God, they have a responsibility in this moment. I pray, God, that they would have ears to hear, that they would listen with anticipation, not for my words, but for your word, that they would have hearts that are open and that we would realize that we are all participating in this moment. It's not that I am passive and and that, they, or that I am active and they are passive. It's that we are all actively engaged in laboring to understand and to submit ourselves to your word. So in these moments, come meet with us in power. We look forward to what you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, the story is told by Dallas Willard in the early chapters of his book, Divine Conspiracy. A true story that is a sad story of a fighter pilot that was doing some, some practice at night, different maneuvers uh, in a training exercise at night. And, and here's a picture, not of that particular pilot, but of a pilot doing those sorts of maneuvers. And the story is told of a, of a pilot that was doing these sort of barrel rolls, flying upside down, doing different trainings in the middle of the night. And the pilot became disoriented, unclear as to where the horizon was, which you could imagine in moments like this that it can be pretty disorienting. And this pilot, uh, in an attempt to pull up and to quickly ascend, pulled up on the tiller but didn't realize that, that she was in fact still upside down and in pulling up, plummeted down into the earth to her own death. 
a really sad story that happened about 20, 30 years ago in a training exercise. And, and the truth is that this sort of experience is rather disorienting such that it may in fact be that in pulling up you're actually going down, that, that you might actually be confused. This is the reality of, of flying a high-powered machine and experiencing these sorts of, of movements. And as we come to what we have been studying in the spring and we're re-engaging in the fall, the Sermon on the Mount, in many ways what Jesus is saying into a first century culture that still resonates powerfully into our own time and place is that, that culture and life living in the kingdom of this world will at times have us flying upside down, confused as to where the horizon is. And what we are calling this series of of sermons as we, as we explore Jesus' great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, we're calling it I See Things Upside Down because in a sense, Jesus stands in the midst of humanity and says, in all of these moments, we have been inverted in the way that we see things as compared to the kingdom. And he begins to speak in a way that is helping kingdom people find the horizon line again. The Sermon on the Mount, he speaks to all different matters of life. He speaks to, to sexuality and power and generosity and to relationships. And he's going to speak into them in such a way that causes us to start to go, well, which way is up and which way is down? Because Jesus speaks in a way that is inverted from so much of what we are, we are told is the norm. And so as we go on this journey, the invitation is going to be we chart along with Jesus and we find the horizon so that we are not confused as to which way is up and which way is down. That in straining to, to garner more power or more wealth, we're not actually plunging to our own destruction. That we actually begin to see these things the way that Jesus sees them. We want to go on a journey with Jesus this fall as a community that begins to understand how to see according to the kingdom which incidentally will mean that we see things upside down. At times it may feel like our head is spinning. It may feel a bit disorienting, but the invitation is to continue to lean in, to listen for the, joy, the voice of Jesus and begin to understand how we see the world as he does. This week in many ways is a, a, a hinge, a pivot in the spring, if you were with us, we studied the Beatitudes, these statements of blessing by Jesus at the beginning of his great Sermon on the Mount, and we noted that these are the marks of what it means to be kingdom people. It's like the decoder ring for everything else he teaches. It starts with being impoverished of spirit and grieving our sin and being meek and humble as a result, filled with his very righteousness and mercy, actually beginning to be peacemakers in the world, even to the point of enduring persecution and suffering. And he's going, that's what it means to be born again from on high, to be kingdom people. And he's about to begin in the Sermon on the Mount teaching us as kingdom people, here's how you interact in all of these ways in culture that will have you seeing things upside down. But between the Beatitudes and teaching about all those different things, there's this, there's this hinge where Jesus is kind of situating us for the, for the full body of the sermon. And what he's going to talk about in the verses we explore together today is this. If you are a kingdom person, what is your right relationship to, to God's world? And what is your right relationship to God's word. In a sense, he's going, okay, you're a kingdom person. Now, here's how you interact with the world and my word. And when you see those things now, in issue after issue throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we'll be, begin to be able to make sense of these things. 
we'll be able to find the horizon line together. So this morning, what we're going to explore is what is the Christian's right relationship to, to God's world and what is the Christian's right relationship to God's word. So let's plunge in together. Look back with me at Matthew 5. Uh, we're going to start in verse, verse 13 together. It says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it, its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. <clears throat> Jesus, the great teacher, teaches in pictures and snapshots and illustrations, and he's going to give us two here as to how we are to interact with the world. The first is that you are salt. You are the salt of the earth. And he says, if salt ceases to be salty, if it ceases to be what it is, what good is it going to have in the world? Now, we, we often think of salt as the flavor that we might put on something, that it, it, it brings out the, the taste of something. And certainly that was true in the first century as well. But, but as best we can tell, what would immediately jump to first century Jewish ears in hearing you are the salt of the earth is not the flavoring work of salt, but the preserving work of salt. That would have been the primary mindset around what this product is for in a home or in a kitchen. Pre-electricity, pre-refrigeration, if you want to keep putrefaction and decay at arm's length, if you want to preserve meat, you have to work salt down into the meat and it will stay longer. It will, as it were, keep the maggots at bay. He's going, decay is always crouching around the edges. It's coming. Jesus is teaching as if to say that the world, the backdrop to the world in which we live is that it's moving towards chaos and death and decay. And he's going, listen, the first reality about your relationship to the world is that you are set out to preserve the world. It's your identity uh, played out in the world, preserves the world from decay. It reminds me of when I was 14 years old. I had a group of friends that I was spending time with. And when you're a teenage boy, Humor is defined by what presses the limits, and we started to cultivate this sense of humor together, the things that we laughed at and talked about, even the ways we'd talk about the opposite gender. As teenage boys, there was just this whole new world opening to us, and we had just kind of like boy town, the way we'd talk and laugh. And, and in the midst of that, I met a guy named Will Cherry. I was 14, he was 17. All the girls thought he was good looking. He had everything together. He was a good athlete. I thought Will was like the coolest guy in the world. And for whatever reason, he was willing to hang out with me and some of my friends. And so Will would hang out with us some. And, and the deal about Will is that he, he knew and loved God. Like he didn't know about him or he didn't, hadn't heard of him. Like Will knew and loved God. And he started spending time with us. And all of a sudden it was the strangest thing. Things that the day before, before Will was hanging out with our group that were funny, when Will was there, all of a sudden it wasn't funny anymore. And it was this weird thing because Will wasn't going, come on guys, clean it up. He wasn't always playing this like, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers role in our life. He just was markedly different and sure of himself and situated in his convictions and he spoke with dignity and respect about every person, where all of a sudden, the, thought, the stuff that is a teenage boy that I thought was hilarious a day or two before, all of a sudden, because Will was there, I was like, shh, shh don't, don't say that. That's the preserving work of kingdom people. 
that when someone actually is marked out by the Spirit of God and they're present in the world, it changes the air in the room. You know what I mean? Like when you show up at work or in the classroom or in the hospital and you're interacting with those around you and, and there's this conviction in your soul because of the things that God has called you to that you only speak well of people. You're never found speaking negatively about someone trashing your boss. You never grumble or complain because the scriptures actually command you not to do that. And so when everybody gets together and the stuff that they peddle in that is so negative and continues to change the shape of the room, that all of a sudden the idea would be that the kingdom people showing up in that space changes the air in such a way that people go, well, I don't want to talk like that anymore. I love the way that Chris talks about people in such a way that brings dignity and value and worth to them. I want to talk like that. You see, the presence of real kingdom people actually changes the air in the room. It's like salt being worked into the meat. Now, one important note to make is that salt one centimeter away from the meat does the meat no good. It's of no benefit. This is why in John 17, when Jesus prayed for his followers, he said, God, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Please don't take them out of the world. Just preserve them, that they would be distinct while in the world. That our call is to be cultivating deep and real relationships with people all around us. People that don't have a living relationship with God. And then to so love them and speak to them and reveal the character of God by your life lived that all of a sudden it begins to preserve from the decay that's creeping at the edges. You see, the first role of a Christian as far as how we relate to the world is that we're called to preserve like salt. And then Jesus, the master teacher, immediately gives another image in the following verse. And what he says is this, is you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they would see your good works and they give glory to your Father who's in heaven. If salt in some ways is a defensive explanation of our relationship to the world, he's going, we, we're defending against decay, we're being worked into the system and, and we're changing the air in such a way that putrefaction is held at arm's length. Well then, light is, is kind of a proactive understanding of our relationship to the world. He's going, we're not just preserving from decay, but we're actually causing darkness to scatter. We shine light into the dark places and the nooks and the crannies of the world in which we live. And in a pre-electricity world, the darkness was dark. And when you lit a lamp at night in a home where there is no electricity, there is no, um, there is no light to be had anywhere in the town or the village where you are, that light is crucial. So what Jesus is describing is humorous because it's so absurd, going, who would light a lamp at night and then say, well, let's not let it shine too brightly. He's going, no, we're struggling in real darkness. And when you light that lamp, you put it up on the stand and make sure the whole house is illuminated. I'm reminded of my friend Tim Cornelson, who's an elder here. Many of you know, um, Tim has been discipling young men for decades. And he was telling the story, I was, we got to hang out just this last week or so, and he was saying he got to go spend time with a guy that's just graduated from high school. He's about to start as a freshman in college. 
And this guy really loves the Lord and wants to live his years in college to the glory of God. And Tim said, you're about to meet a whole lot of new people. You're going to exchange these pleasantries of, oh, I'm from this town and I'm studying this thing. He said, what if part of the way that you introduced yourself to this whole new community was, and by the way, the most important thing about me is my relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I just figured you ought to know that because that's going to that's shape so much of who I am and no doubt the way we interact. And, and when Tim told me that, I was like, ooh, that's intense, you know? Uh, but the beautiful thing is this kid went to college and he started doing it. And he called Tim and he said, I've been introducing myself this way to people. And he said, it's opening up these conversations. And people are going, oh, wow, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. And he's being aware of the fact that he actually carries the light of the world and he's been set in a place not to go, well, I don't want to shine too brightly. I don't want to be too associated with Jesus. You see, Jesus is telling the story in such a way that, that people would chuckle at the absurdity of it and go, well, certainly light is not ashamed of being light, right? And what Tim was was encouraging this young man towards is go it's just saying go be who you are you are the light of the world let your good works shine in front of people brothers and sisters as we're thinking about our relationship to the world as kingdom people the invitation is to be salt that's preserving against chaos and death but also light that is illumining the way of god I just want to pause and ask you, where in your world right now have you ceased to be distinct? Friends or coworkers that have been around you for extended periods of time that wouldn't immediately say, yeah, there's something really different about that person. If that's you, how has that become the case? What's going on there? Where have you wanted to be not too Christian? You know, not too aligned with Jesus. You see, he's saying, a kingdom person that has tasted this grace and this glory, the invitation is to be salt and to be light. One final note before we press on is this. The first word in verse 13 and 14 that we read in English, there's, there's a nuance in it that could easily be lost if, we, if we're not aware of what's going on in the original language. It says, you are salt and you are light. But that you that is used, two notes about it, it's communal and it's emphatic. It's communal and emphatic. So it actually would be an appropriate, though a bit clunky, translation if it said y'all and y'all only. That's what Jesus is saying. Y'all and y'all only are the salt of the earth. Meaning, this is a communal endeavor that Jesus sent out two by two. He traveled with 12. He loved in community. You don't see apostles as lone rangers. They are doing this together. And as you together with your brothers and sisters love the world in a distinct way, it is y'all and y'all only that preserve against decay. It is y'all and y'all only that shines a light into the dark world that is so disorienting, inviting us to see things inverted from the way that kingdom people see it. You see, we have a distinct calling on our lives as a community, y'all and y'all only, us together. We are salt and light. This is our invitation as to how we interact with God's world, which raises the question, well, how do we do it? And I think Jesus anticipates this question because in the very next breath, he's talking about our relationship to his word. And the truth is, if we are going to be utterly distinct in the fact that we preserve and illumine God's world, it is going to require that we have a very special relationship to God's word. So look back with me at verse 
17 and 18. It says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now Jesus is this upstart teacher. He's He's quickly garnering a gathering and people are wondering, okay, this, this homeless traveling rabbi that used to be a carpenter, like, are we aligned with our historical faith? Are we still? And Jesus is going, look, I'm not here to, to abandon the law. I'm here to fulfill it. And that word when he says fulfill literally means to fill it up. He's going to fill it up, cram it full of meaning and truth, all that it was ever intended to be. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to, I've come to fulfill them. He says, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What Jesus is saying is that he has a really high view of the scriptures. He values them. When he says dot or iota, what he's saying is, I'm not just committed to the ideas of scriptures, I certainly am that, not just the paragraphs or the sentences or the words, but actually the little markings that make up each letter, I'm committed to those. Jesus' view of scripture couldn't be any higher. He's inviting us to cherish the scriptures. I got to spend some time in the midst of all my travels this summer with Ashley's family in Kansas City. My father-in-law, Howard, is a car guy. Um, I'm not really a car guy, but I'm, I'm happy to be a car guy when I'm with Howard. Like, I ask the questions, and I look at the stuff. And, and he, he keeps one of his cars in California at his cousin's house because he goes out to visit several times a year, and he's got this, this it's kind of a classic car, and he keeps it at, unc- at, at cousin Mel's house because he likes to drive it when he's there, and, and that's... that's the home base for this car that he loves. Well, he loves to drive it around in California with the windows down. That's one reason it's there. But the other reason is because Cousin Mel is the most meticulous human I've ever met. Cousin Mel polishes my father-in-law's car once a month, even though it gets driven about once a month. So it occasionally gets driven, and like one drive means I need to check all the fluids, I'm going to wash it, and then I'm going to hand wax it again just because. And so Cousin Mel is tending to this vehicle. He loves it. He makes sure everything is just right. And while I was there this summer, the word from Cousin Mel to my father-in-law, Howard, was, hey, I've noticed that the stitching on the front seats is like a little bit frayed. It's not what it used to be. So I'm actually going to redo the stitching on the seats in your car, if that's okay with you. And Howard looked at me and goes, that's why I keep the car with Uncle Mel, you know? <laughs> Mel cherishes this car and when we talk about okay Jesus is saying here's your relationship to the world and how is that going to take shape here's your relationship to my word and what he's inviting us to is to cherish his word to cherish his word like Uncle Mel cherishes that car the idea being that he, Jesus is going even down to like the stitching on the seats. Like I have paid attention to every last detail. And Jesus is going, if you are going to be distinct in the world, able to find the horizon line, able to cut through all of the confusion, and is there not just a lot of confusion in our world? as to how we're going to make sense of the world around us and how we're going to make sense of our place in the world. And in the midst of that sort of confusion where we don't know if we're upside down or right side up, Jesus is going, listen, the only way you're going to be salt and light is if you cherish my word. You pay attention even to the dot and the iota. 
You soak in it and you pay attention to it and you let it shape your imagination and your thoughts. And as we press into this chapter and later chapters, we're going to realize that what Jesus is talking about is the way that we think about sex and marriage and divorce. The way that we think about our money and our power and our relationships. And he's going to press on things that would have been very uncomfortable for first century Jewish individuals living under Roman authoritarian rule. But hello, they are just as uncomfortable for us. He's going to press on some things that cause us to go, oh, oh, that's what you're talking about. If I am going to fill the law full of all of its meaning and honor it down to the letter, it is going to touch every one of those areas. And that is how we will become salt and light. It's because we actually see the world inverted from the way that it has been sold to us. And all of a sudden people start to say, you see everything differently, don't you? With like eternal perspective and beauty. That your vision of the world is fresh and new because it is ancient and true. You see, this is how Jesus is saying we will begin to cultivate our right relationship with the world. We will preserve and illumine the world when we learn to cherish His Word. He explains how we cherish His Word in verse 19, saying this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, what what he's saying is, how do you come to cherish the word of God down to the dot and the iota? He says, well, listen, the first thing you, you don't do is relax the teaching. And the word literally means to loosen to untie, to let it loose. Every generation since Jesus' presence on the planet has been invited to renegotiate with his commands. It's part of living in a broken world is that we come into things, we confront things dependent on our particular cultural moment and where we are in time, and all of a sudden we go, well, this piece of truth is now very inconvenient, Jesus. So is there some way we can renegotiate and just kind of loosen that? That feels a bit restrictive over here. I'm not in on that, but, I, but this is still good. There's even a, a movement in our kind of Christian culture and a movement today afoot of saying, I'm in with Jesus, but I'm not so sure about like the whole of the Bible or a commitment to the local church. And the struggle is that the idea that we could be committed to Jesus and not share his view of the scriptures means that we are committed to a Jesus of our own making a figment of our imagination. The Jesus who lived and breathed and walked and talked in a way that changed the course of human history was so committed to the text. He delighted in it, even down to the little markings that made up the letters. And what he said to his followers is, if you're going to be distinct, you will be committed in the same way. And just as an aside, I don't mean like a wooden literalist translation that lacks nuance and understanding of historical realities. But what I do mean is that if we are going to love and study God's word, if we are going to study it in such a way that we come to conclusions that are diametrically opposed to what is said in the Old and New Testament, we've done some violence to the text that Jesus is not okay with. And in fact, as we continue to untie those connections to the scriptures, as we loosen it, we become less and less distinct in the world. We no longer preserve it from decay. 
we no longer shine light in a way that causes darkness to scatter. And so the invitation is to be courageous, humble, wholehearted Christians that cherish the Word. And as we do, we preserve and illumine the world. You see, he says, don't loosen it. And then in the second half of verse 19, he says, do it and teach it. Or around here we say, embody it and declare it. Live it out and talk about it. This is for public action. Your faith is not private. And any attempt to make it so is an absurd departure from what Jesus intended. Well, we're called to preserve and illumine God's world as we cherish God's word. One final note, what happens as a result? What's the outcome? Look back with me at verse 19 and 20. Let's reread 19 and read 20. It says, So therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus finishes this portion of the sermon with a promise and a warning. The promise is that if we live in alignment with his law in these ways, if we honor him in these ways, that we will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Which forces us just to pause and ask this question, whose commendation are you living for? Who do you want to just bless you publicly? The, the head of surgery, your professor, your manager, maybe it's your dad. You just, more than anything, there's this person that you just want them to say, I'm so proud of you, you've done a great job. And what Jesus is saying is whoever tops your list pales in comparison to having the eternal, divine, and glorious one say, you are great in the kingdom of heaven. He's going to arrange your life around that commendation. Live for that praise. And then he issues a warning. And he says, and by the way, if your righteousness does not exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, so what Jesus is saying is, we've got to try really hard, Seven Mile Road. Right? We've got to try really hard. We've got to be really good. We've got to be better than the Pharisees. We've got to love even the letters of the law and then do it perfectly. Otherwise, we will never be in God's presence because we're not really his people. The end. Mm -mm. Yeah, thankfully your pastor didn't forget the gospel while he was away. And thankfully this verse has a context. Jesus started this sermon just a few minutes before by saying, listen, I'll tell you at the beginning how you inherit the kingdom of heaven, and it's by being impoverished of spirit. So when he gets to verse 20 and he says, your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven, when he's already told us how we inherit the kingdom of heaven, is he now saying, actually, I ditched that idea, and what I really want is more high-strung Pharisees that are trying to do it all just right. No, what he's doing all the way throughout the Sermon on the Mount is pressing us back to where he started, reminding us. He's going, listen, later on in Matthew 18, his disciples are going to be fighting about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And he's going to sit them down and say, until you receive it like a little child, you will not be great in the kingdom. When he makes this comment about our righteousness having to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, he's introducing us yet again to our impoverishment of spirit. What he's inviting us to do is like little children go, I can't do it. 
Like, I, I need you. I need you to do it for me. And Jesus, in his brilliance in teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, is inviting us into kingdom life with the recognition that the only way you will ultimately enter it is by turning your eyes to the one that truly did preserve and illumine the world by perfectly cherishing God's word all the way down to the letter at every moment. Jesus Christ lived the life we were supposed to live. And then he died the death that we deserve to die because daily, in the face of an eternal and a perfect God, we reject his word. In so many areas, we do put a bowl over our light and go, I don't want to be too much of a Christian. I don't want to be too bold or too courageous. I don't want to be too aligned. I don't want to love the scriptures too much. I've got so many other things going on. And into the space of that disregard for God's glory, Jesus comes and he pays the price to rescue us back to himself. And it's his grace that actually empowers us to as we study the rest of the Sermon on the Mount through the fall. Listen, when we know that our righteousness does exceed the Pharisees because it's already been secured by Jesus. We now get to read the Sermon on the Mount with the winds of the Spirit in our sails, carrying us along. We get to read it as freedom, not as a weight around our neck. That we actually get to read it that I and you, we get to live as kingdom people empowered by His Spirit and by His grace. We actually can by his power, with hearts full of gratitude, preserve and illumine the world as we cherish his word. Let's be those sorts of people. Let me pray for us. Oh, so Father, my request right now is that by your spirit, you would encourage where we need encouragement. That you'd help us to know that that we can't do this on our own, but that you have done it on our behalf. I pray that you would convict us, that you would, as you encourage, you would convict, you would actually show my brothers and sisters, that you would expose our hearts even now to where we have, we have ceased to be distinct. We have ceased to be bold and courageous. God, where we need to repent of the ways that we have not loved and cherished your word where we have renegotiated its meaning to, to make life simpler for us. I pray, God, that you would raise up here at Seven Mile Road a whole host of men and women that are empowered by your grace, that cherish your word, and that as a result have a preserving and illuminating impact on the world around us. Would you make it true, God? We bless you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.